Don't spoil me. I haven't said anything yet. My name's Charlie, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everyone. I am uh, powerless over alcohol. My wife, the weather. I'm not. I am not responsible for Hugo. And I'm powerless over you and, and what you think. Uh, during the next few minutes, uh, I'm going to cover uh, seven miracles that prove to me the work of a higher power in my life. Now, I hope they come across as miracles to you, but that really is important. As long as they appear as miracles to me, which they indeed have. You're going to have to wait for those few minutes. And incidentally, uh, all six doors, I've asked the housekeeper to lock them all from the outside. <laughs> so, there'll be no leaving. And I'm going <laughs> to... And I'm going to hold this down to about three hours. You get out of here by two o'clock. <laughs> On that subject, I will beg you to leave at 1130 because I have to be back in Charleston and do something that I just thrill doing every year at this time, being the Christmas parade. I have to do that. Listen. 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 That's not for you. That's for me. That's to remind me that my early contact with AA, I had the problem of listening. I could hear sounds coming out of people's mouths, but I didn't listen to what they were saying. I was looking at what they were wearing. I was checking their diction. I was checking their stories, and I, you know, I was I was taking this this inventory of them. I didn't listen. Let me give you an example of how important it is to listen. And I take this from the big book. No one can object to my reading a page out of the big book, right? We all believe everything we hear in the big book. All right. This is a true story. Always be suspicious of these stories when a guy starts off by saying this is a true story. But it was told to me as a true story that a young AA uh, lady just a few months in the program was having difficulty with her with her live-in lover and her date. She was dating and she was getting all mixed up with trying to be all things to both people. And so she, with all these problems, she took these intimate problems to her sponsor, which was a good wise step. And her sponsor referred to the big book, who also a very smart of the sponsor. And she said, all of these problems you're having along the lines of sex are, are explained very clearly in the big book. And they're on page 69. <laughs> now, I know what a lot of you are doing right now. You're saying, I can hardly wait to get back to the, my room and get the big book out and see what's on that page. Well, I'm not going to read that page. Listen. <laughs> So this lady rushed back home. She could hardly wait to, you know, to solve the problems. She knew that the AA program worked, and she just knew that would solve all of her problems. And so she found a copy of uh, of the big book, and uh, she got it out, started opening the pages, and she uh, sort of forgot the forgot the pages. Um, I really don't need these glasses. It's just that sometimes my curiosity overcomes my vanity. I think I'll try it without them. Anyhow. <laughs> Anyhow, instead of turning to that page that her sponsor told, and she didn't want to call the sponsor back and say, I didn't listen. I didn't hear what page you told me. I didn't listen. She kept thinking, what page was it? 96. That's right, it was page 96. So she opened the big book to page 96, and I will read from this. And here is what the big book said to solve her problems. Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. <laughs> you are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you have to offer. It's in the book. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. <laughs> one of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. <clears throat> she often says that if she had continued to work with them, she, might, uh, she, she may not have deprived others who have since recovered on their own chance. Suppose you are making a second visit. He has read this volume and says he is prepared to go through with the 12 steps of the program. Having had the experience yourself, 
you can give him much practical advice. Let him know you are available. <laughs> if he wishes to make a decision and tells his story, but do not insist upon it that he prefers to consult someone else. Now, here's the part I like best. He may be broke and homeless. If he is, you might want to help him by getting him a job or giving him a little financial assistance. But you should not defy, de deny your family and creditors of the money you owe them. Perhaps you'll want to take this man into your home for a few nights. <laughs> so you say it is important to listen and get the page right. And be sure we're reading uh, the message right. In order for these miracles to come across, as I hope they will, as miracles, you're going to have to know just a little bit about uh, who this guy is. And uh, I'll be very, very, very brief. Our stories reveal in a general way what we were like, what happened, what it's like now. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on what it was like, because if there are any other alcoholics in this room, you know what it was like. It was pure hell. A terrible, terrible way of living. We have that in common, that bond. So I'm not going to dwell on so much about what it was like. I'm going to dwell more on what has happened since I found AA. In fact, I think of my life in two parts now, before AA and after AA. I call it BAAA and after AAA. Incidentally, does anyone in here know what an AAAA is? Drunk to join the, the automobile club? No one knew that? All right. <laughs> Very quickly, my childhood, I uh, was born in Cajun country in Louisiana. My father was a refinery man, a boilermaker. He moved around quite often. I changed schools quite often three times in one year through my elementary grades. Often did not know uh, who my my schoolmates were, and in some cases didn't even know my teacher's name. We moved a lot of times. I have a feeling on looking back on the tough depression my folks went through. I think we probably moved every time the rent came through because we did a lot of moving. I never had any roots. I never had any solid feeling of belonging in any one particular place until um, we ended up in the state of Kansas just as the Depression struck. Anyone here from Kansas? Okay, I want to apologize to you for what I'm about to say. Kansas is one hell of a place to spend a Depression. I can tell you that. And even in good times sometimes. I love Kansas. I spent uh, about nine or ten agonizing years in that state, but I tell you, we I really experienced uh, poverty. Uh, my folks had absolutely nothing. I had to, uh, going to high school, wear these denim pants that were made in the refinery. They were handed out through the welfare system, and they didn't have they didn't have those rivets on the side, you know, and that was just a big sign that that guy's on welfare. He's broke. I had this pride, even as a very young person. And, oh, I hated to wear those pants. I, I can still remember that. And I can guarantee you, I don't have a pair of them in my house now. If I had them, I'd chop them up. But I, that's just one of the many things of, of, uh, of my childhood I recall, that feeling of not having. Uh, also, I was raised by, my mother was a disciplinarian in the family, rather domineering. I don't uh, dislike her and don't anyone feel badly because I'm talking about my mother. But she, her idea of a spanking was not a hand on a fanny. It was a stick about that big around across your back. And even in high school, she beat me that way. I was on the basketball team. I couldn't dress out of gym. And the coach would call me down and say, why aren't you dressed out? And I said, well, you know, I'm just not dressed out. So he'd say, bend over. And he got his board of education. And I got another squad. So I don't think she was the greatest mom in the world, but I don't blame her for my alcoholism. And I quit a long time ago of trying to figure out why me. I just am, and I, I blame no one. I just tell you this for some background. Also, Kansas was the last state in the Union to go wet. No booze out there. I didn't see my parents drink. <laughs> they couldn't afford to buy bread, much less booze. Uh, so I wasn't raised around alcohol. At age 16, I joined the Kansas National Guard. I heard they were going to camp up in Lake Malak, Minnesota, and they were going to pay you $21 for those 21 days. There was a lot of money during the Depression. We'll have to buy some new clothes with rivets on them. <laughs> so I joined, and, and I went to that camp, and it was great, you know, and I thought that was the end of it. Then I went to a drill one night, for which we were paid a dollar and a quarter once a week, and I went to a drill, and the captain said, I've got some news for you. President Roosevelt wants us to go into federal service and show the regular army what they should be doing. So I came back home and told my mother and father at the supper, I said, 
I have something real serious to discuss. And Dan said, all right, what is it? And hurry up. Said, well, I'm going to quit school uh, and not finish the 12th grade, and I want to go with my outfit, my name Overlock. Big pause. I expected a big debate. Nothing. Next words I hear were past potatoes. That was it. One less mouth to feed. Well, I tell you, when I went in the service, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I hear people sometimes complain about the military. To me, at that point in my life, it was just the greatest thing that could happen. You got three square meals. You got your clothing all furnished. Somebody told you what to do. You had the camaraderie of all the other fellows. And it was just great. I just, I just loved it. Until this little corporal started picking on me. And this little sergeant starts giving me trouble. And I thought, wait a minute. If I can get what he has, he just longed for AA. If I can get what he has, he won't be able to pick on me. So I applied myself, and I really did study and, and, and earned it. And I was promoted to corporal, a signal corporal. And the other buddy and myself, uh, other uh, signal corporal and myself, were practicing the semaphore flags one day. And we asked permission to go out over the reservation. Now, this was in Little Rock, Arkansas, Camp Robinson. That's before you were a baby. Your parents hadn't even met each other when this happened. When he was Camp Pike, that was WW1, I think. Yeah. I didn't know there was anyone older than me. I got to talk to your daddy. He didn't clean that place up very well because we spent the first month out there cleaning it up. Anyway, we were granted permission to go out and practice the semaphore flags. I'm going somewhere with this now. Stay with me. And we practiced these, and we got pretty good at it. We needed the semaphore because if the radio breaks down or if the telephone lines were broken with the field artillery battery, you had to have communications. Or, you know, people might take those cannons and start shooting each other. So we had to, this is very important. So we were out going over some of these hills, and we looked down after a couple hours, and down on the highway there was a little, in those days we called them roadhouses. Now you people call them nightclubs. But this was definitely a roadhouse. A couple little gasoline pumps in front, little store inside. They sold things, you know. So he looked at me and I looked at him. I said, yeah, let's go down there and you know, see what happens. Get a coat or something. Something real exciting. Get an RC and a moon pie or something. <laughs> so we crawled under the fence. We crawled under the fence, went down over the hill, went down into this little place. There were two other soldiers down there who were obviously uh, down there without leave. The name of the club, I'll never forget, was the Over the Hill Club. Wasn't that original? The Over the Hill Club. So the four of us were sitting in there talking. And an old farmer, real old farmer, he must have been 35 years old. This old, this old farmer came in and he said, fellas, he said, my truck's about out of gas. You know, I thought, well, that's a sad story. And he said, but I've got a gallon of homemade wine. And if you guys would like to buy it, I can get enough gas, you know, to get home. So we dug through our pockets. I think we came up with something like 50 cents. And, uh, which incidentally would buy about four gallons of gas then. Some of the young people are going, oh, is that real? Twelve cents a gallon. So we bought this jug of wine. And this is the first sign that, in retrospect, that I have that alcoholism was, was with me long before I began to drink. This was my first drink. But I appointed myself as custodian of pouring the wine. So we ordered the four glasses from the, from the lady there. They hadn't bought anything from her yet, but she brought us four glasses. We were sitting in this little booth, and I poured them about an inch and a half in each glass, and I filled mine up. And I started drinking it, and it tasted like sort of like strong grape juice with a little, just a little tang or pick to it. And uh, I was watching them, so that before they emptied theirs, I wanted to empty mine, and I did. It's time to pour some more, so I did it again, poured mine full. Now this time, after I drank mine very quickly, it was time for the third pour, and we're getting down about that far from the end of the gallon, transparent jug. So I gave him about a half an inch piece, and I finished the rest of the wine in my glass. I chug-a-lugged that down. By then, I was feeling real great, and this, there's nothing to this stuff, you know, and I just poured it right down. And then, very shortly, the strangest thing happened. The table in front of me flew right up and hit me in the face. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. I nearly broke my nose. And, and, and that's just the way it seemed. The next thing I recall hearing was some voice saying, don't tear his uniform. And I realized I was being drugged on my back 
under a barbed wire fence. These three guys were getting me back to camp. Boy, the camp was the last place I wanted to go then, in that condition. They put me on their shoulders, so they tell me, carried me down my company street. This is just before retreat, a real famous time to be going back to your unit. The next thing I realized, the next real consciousness uh, I had was something very cold and very loud hitting me on the head. And I'm sitting in the cold shower. My boots are still on. My uniform's still on. The bugler's blowing assembly for retreat. And in my outfit, you missed the formation. They just shot you. I mean, you don't miss formations. And I became conscious for the first time. Very first experience with alcohol. I black out. I pass out. And that should have told me something, but it didn't at all. I went on and straightened up, and uh, I think I became a pretty good soldier. I got rapid promotions, and I knew that since we mobilized on December 23, 1940, and we had a year to serve, I would get out on December 23, 1941. Well, I just about have a year in. Well, then December 7th happened. Some of you don't know about that, but it was in all the papers. <laughs> World War II was on, and they decided that uh, maybe they'd just go ahead and keep us after promising we'd only be one year. Forty-seven months later, I finally got out. After 36 months overseas, four major campaigns, and nothing really to be ashamed of in the way I performed as a soldier, though I did do my share of drinking, but everyone did. You drank to, uh, you drank to get over your fears. You drank to get over your grief at times, and then you just drank to drink the hell away from what was going on. I did my share of that. But it didn't interfere with my duties. And I came out of the military feeling pretty good. Uh, first part of May, when we knew the Germans were surrendering, I was in the hospital at the time. And I began to like the way this nurse walked. <laughs> I was a big boy by then. You know, I'd grown up some. I was a little 16-year-old Kansas arm boy. We started dating, and the following month we got married. Now, you got to remember, things were going 100 miles an hour. You didn't have time for these long, these long courtships or long goodbyes or long hellos. And we were married. She was an Army nurse. Um, two children out of that marriage, one uh, adopted and one, uh, we always told our adopted child that she was heaven-made and that her brother was homemade. <laughs> she... Strange thing is, while I love them both, of course, and of course they're grown and, and on their own now, uh, but my daughter really adopted has really turned out to be the apple of my eyes. She's a great little gal. Uh, I can get through this. Okay, let's move along. Everything went well, and the kids grew up, and we had a little house, and a little car, and I had a little job, and we were making it, and uh, then I noticed my wife began to drink more than just casually. Uh, at, when we go to a cocktail party, I'd notice that, you know, while I'm drinking one, she's drinking two, and, uh, I really wasn't into drinking a lot. I, you know, I like to get that high that I once had, which I'd still like to have again, but I've never found it. <laughs> it was a long time ago. She was drinking two, and then she'd drink one and put it under her coat to take to the car. And, um, I began to get concerned. We had a few words about it, but nothing serious. And finally, uh, she became a full-fledged alcoholic with her drinking. Now, I know what's... Who are the Al-Anons in here? Hold up your hand. Okay, a lot of you. I know how you Al-Anons feel in living with, with an alcoholic. It's, uh, every siren I heard, I thought it was her having a wreck. Every news bulletin I have about a well, car turned over such and such a place, I think, oh, my God, it's her. I come home and find her passed out on the kitchen floor or in the bedroom. And uh, some pretty rough years in there. Uh, and I remember asking her, why? Why do you drink? You want our marriage to fall apart? Why do you drink? She says, I don't know. I said, that's not an answer. See? Can you can you see how that would happen? al do. And I said, Peggy, you've got to stop drinking. She said, I can't stop. I said, that's ridiculous. Just don't drink. Said, it doesn't. She says, it doesn't work that way. I have got to have a drink. Well, cunning and baffling as alcohol is, Alcoholics are cunning and baffling. So I began to get these tremendous <laughs> plastic card bills. And she's going through the neighborhood shopping for all the, all the people in the neighborhood and putting it on my charge account, you know, to get the cash because they don't take credit cards, at least they didn't then, at liquor stores. Well, 
it got very bad. And one morning, as both the youngsters were heading off for school, my wife was down on her hands and knees in the dining room table with cups of coffee and a saucer, talking to the little people, pouring cups of coffee. And it's sad and it's funny, but it was, but it was, it was the beginning of a first-hand close experience with a delirium tremens. And if any of you have been around anyone with DTs, or if you've had them yourself, well, if you've had them yourself, you wouldn't remember. <laughs> but if you've been around anyone, it's a frightening experience. So the driving the kids to school, I got a neighbor to do that morning, and I got her, you know, to get up and leave the little people alone with the coffee cups. Then I heard her talking to her mother real loud in the bathroom. I went in there. There was a stack of towels she was talking to. I got her in the bedroom. I called AA. I knew a, a fellow in AA. He came out to, he said, well, first of all, call your doctor right away, and I'll be out. By now, she's seeing faces at the windows, screaming. So I called my doctor, and he said, I'll have a prescription delivered to her called peraldehyde. And he says, all you have to do is just give her a big spoonful of peraldehyde about every hour, and she'll be all right. I said, great, you know, whatever. So the peraldehyde arrived. I think it was a four or five ounce little bottle. I gave her a spoonful of it, and it did seem to help her. So I relaxed for about 10 minutes until I heard this body hit the floor. She'd gone in the kitchen and chug-a-lug the rest of the peraldehyde. By now, things are getting serious. To make a long story short, this fellow from AA who is now dead, God rest his soul, he was a wonderful man. He came and stayed with us and convinced her that she should try AA. And she did. Well, I used to sit in the car and wait while she'd go to her AA meetings. I took all alcohol out of the, out of the house, and I found it in the darndest places <laughs> The little pints and the flush box and the commode, in the pockets of her coats and hat boxes, I found more pieces of bottles of booze when I searched that little house. I got all that cleaned out, all the pills cleaned out, and she got into AA. And she did very well. Out of, the, out of her last five years of her life, she was sober for perhaps four years. She had several slips of short duration, went to Palmetto Center a few times. And anyhow, those were pretty good years. I supported her in that, and I and I and I tell you that not for any pat on the back. For me, it was easy to do. I I wasn't really into drinking. I didn't have it in the house. I I, I didn't buy it. I went to a few cocktail parties on my own, but probably in those five years, I may have consumed maybe a, a quart of booze in five years, free drinks, other people's drinks. One of those things where you have to be seen and be seen. I have to do that in my business sometimes. At least I tell myself I do. I really don't. Um, so, finally, in sitting in the car, I, she, it was recommended that I go to Al-Anon. Well, I went to Al-Anon for two different meetings. I was the only man present. And it seemed to me that all the women were just talking about their spouses. I felt very uncomfortable. I only went once, didn't go back, and I didn't get anything out of it. Isn't that strange how, how you can't get the whole picture in one hour? I went to a, I thought, well, that was probably just that meeting. So I went to another Al-Anon meeting, same thing, left back in the car sitting. So she said, why don't you come in? This is an open meeting. So I came to the open meetings. After a while, it cold in the car. I came to the closed meetings. I sat in the back. You didn't tell me to leave. So I sat there, and during the time that she went to the meetings, and she went to four or five a week, I would go with her, and I'd sit in the back. And then, as I do now, I admired and fell in love with alcoholics. The depths to which many of them had fallen in their stories, Alfred Hitchcock, nightmarish dramas, and now they were standing there with a suit and tie and sober. God, I love those people. And I still do. Um, then comes the time when she's, uh, she's sober and we've gone to a Citadel Delaware game and driving back that Sunday across, uh, I'm not sure I can really tell this. Driving across that big Chesapeake Bay Bridge, she began to hemorrhage very much from her mouth. I stopped at a little way station. Highway patrolman was seated in there. He said, follow me. And we raced to that hospital. And that's the, what's the name of that little town? Just the side of the the bridge. What? No, in Annapolis. This side, south of it. Virginia Beach. Virginia Beach. Thank you. Virginia Beach Hotel. I mean, uh, we raced up to the Virginia Beach uh, Hospital, took her in, and they pulled her around and then wanted to discharge her as fast as they could after a few days. I can see why. They didn't know what was going on. As it turned out, she had had an uh, aortic operation. She had a graft here, and a thing had come loose and began to float. And she would hemorrhage until her blood pressure would get low, then it would stop. 
just went on and on for several times. But as I was driving her to that hospital, following that patrolman, she was trying to talk through this hemorrhaging, and I couldn't understand her words. So I held her head up by me, and I said, what are you saying? What are you saying? And uh, she said, thank God I'm sober. And that uh, really impressed me, and it still does. But what could have been her dying breath, she's thanking God that she's sober. That was pretty powerful stuff. Uh, she died shortly after that, and I began to drink very much, very fast, and get very drunk very often, like every night. I'd taken nearly a year off during her illness, and I didn't have anything going for me, so I just sat at home and got drunk. Now, doesn't that sound like fun, <laughs> to be free to do nothing but just sit around and drink? Well, it wasn't fun. I had blackouts. I had... uh White, I still can't figure this one out. I had one white uh, suit. What do they call those? Leisure suits in those days. <laughs> had grass stains on the elbows and knees. I don't know how it got there. So I wondered about that for the longest time. Did I have a good time or not? I don't know. I don't know. Total, total blackout. I finally went on back to work. Uh, which is a good thing to do, and uh, uh, where I worked for a few months, I mean, at the station where I've been with a long while, they took me back, they seemed to be glad to have me, and I uh, continued to drink on and off, but I didn't let it interfere with my work, I decided to drink only on weekends, well, we all know that weekends begin on Friday, and they run until Monday most of the time. So Friday to Monday, I was doing a good bit of nipping and drinking, especially on the weekends. Uh, finally, it got to the point where I was nipping during the day, staying just straight enough to keep my hat on straight, do what I had to do, and then getting drunk every night. While I was doing this, I was courting my present wife, and I convinced her that she ought to, she ought to try it too. It's great. And her contribution to our drinking was to introduce me to a black Russian. Oh, <laughs> You know, they make a soda pop that tastes like one of those things, and somebody brought me one of those one day at the house, and I said, get that thing out of here quick. I don't, I don't want to be reminded of that. Uh, but we had, I suppose, what we thought were some good drinking times. And after a couple of years of our marriage, instead of our marriage growing, as I had known from experience, and marriage is supposed to grow, ours was going the other way. I had no idea why. I knew I was drinking too much, and uh, I don't know that I tried to take her inventory so much, but we were both drinking too much. Things just weren't working out. To the point that I clipped out a, uh, an ad of a, an attorney and began to think about divorce. See, it couldn't be alcohol. It has to be something else. I don't know what the heck it was. We just were not really together. As a matter of fact, our honeymoon cruise out of Miami, first, see if this is insanity. First night of our honeymoon cruise, I was so drunk on that ship that I not only could not find the stateroom, Stacy's waiting with a black negligee. Imagine that, you guys. No, second thought, don't imagine that. That's my wife. I couldn't even find the right deck, much less the right. That's a great way to spend your first night of your honeymoon. Uh, and still, later on, I was to scream, I'm not insane. There's nothing wrong with me. That's just one of a dozen ins insane things. We'll move along in the interest of time. We're counting down here. Uh, finally, a gun drove me to AA. I had reached such low opinion, low self-esteem of myself, of, of everything around me, with this constant drinking every night, that I came out of a blackout around 2 or 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Who knows what time it is when you're drinking. I was in the utility room of my house, dumping out boxes, looking for my pistol. Uh, I didn't find it, thank God, because my daughter had taken it. And I don't know what I would have done with it. I do recall the faint thought of if I find it, I just put the barrel in my mouth and that's it. That's it. And that ends it. And suicide is a permanent solution to any temporary problem. Uh, but I, obviously I didn't do that. I wouldn't be standing here boring you people right now. But that did make me think, maybe I better call for some help. 
So I sat up until daylight, didn't want to call too early, and I called AA in the book. And a fellow called me back, strangely enough, a fellow I knew. What a, what, a, what a strange miracle there. He said, yes, Charlie, there is a meeting. It's tonight. It's over here. You know, it's over here in Mount Pleasant. You gotta come to the, you gotta come to the, to the courtroom here, the police station. You know what that is? And I said, no, and I don't know if I want to go there. Uh, he said, yeah, it's all right. That's where we have our meetings. So he said, come early and we'll talk. I did. I went there, picked up a white chip that night. The next two weeks, I didn't drink. And it was just miraculous, the sudden change in the way I, way I felt and the, and the hope that I had for the future. After that, I uh, worked very hard during a long telethon and thought, well, you know, this one drink thing, one drink will relax me. I'm so damn tired, I can't sleep. So I'll just get one one little tiny small bottle of one drink. This was Monday night. So I had the one little drink. And it didn't make me drunk. Tuesday was a meeting night in Mount Pleasant. And instead of going to Tuesday's meeting, and I was going to go, you know, not tell anybody. Don't tell anyone you've been drinking, you know, one of those things. Instead of going to that meeting, I went to one of my three liquor stores and bought a quart. I was off on five weeks of the most hellish, progressive drinking of my life. You had two hours and a whole lot of patience. I can paint those stories for you. When I went back the last time and picked up a white chip again, I would have crawled on my hands and knees. You know, in how it works, very clearly states in there, if you want what we have and willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready. Then you are ready. Well, my then had arrived. And I threw myself into AA, attended the meetings rapidly, grabbed a hold of about three guys who I almost physically held on to them because they were sober, they were laughing, they were there at every meeting. I wasn't impressed with the fact that they'd been sober for a couple of years or so. I, I just sobered a day and the next day they were still there. And I wouldn't even leave town. I was scared to death. And I stayed free of booze. And they said, do other things. So I went to detox. I put my arm around the guys sitting down there shaking so hard they couldn't hold coffee. And I went to to treatment centers and uh, I got on the 12-step thing. Here I am. Who am I going to help? I've had less than three months. And I'm driving them around, driving them to Palmetto Center. I'm taking, you know, I'm going to save the world. Didn't help anybody, but one person helped me. Um, and then one night, they they called out for the 90-day chip. I went up to the red chip. I can't explain how I felt that night because I don't think any of you here, I haven't heard anyone explain what is a higher power. How do you really feel? But I knew that something was working in my life because my record for staying sober, boys and girls, was two and a half days. And I would try. After a hellacious weekend of drinking, I'd make it through Monday. I'd make it through Tuesday. And Wednesday noon, martini. In the middle of the second martini, I could feel every anger, every resentment, every anxiety, every jealousy in my body. I could just feel it come to the surface. I would get mad at the waitress, get mad at my wife, get mad at you if you were there, anybody. My personality was just doing that. That should have been a signal, too. It wasn't. But that was my record, two and a half days. Now I'd gone 90 days in my adult life, never before, without a drink, and I knew that a power was working. Uh, up until that moment, it had probably been mostly the AA Fellowship, but it was still working. So I kept kept going and kept going. One night, you know what happened? They said, does anyone have a birthday? And I said, yes, I do. And I went up and picked up a blue chip. I'd watched other people pick these things up, and I never believed them. I thought, no alcoholic. These people are not real alcoholics like I was, because no alcoholic can go a year without drinking. But I did. I think I expected something magical to happen then, and it really didn't, except I did want that blue chip. So I had the blue chip in my pocket. Two months later, I sort of relaxed and thought, ah, now I can go on vacation. Now I can relax. Now I have a year. I must know it all. So we went on a vacation to one of our favorite vacation spots, uh, which in South Florida, Punta Gorda. Any people know where Punta Gorda, Florida is near Fort Myers? You know. Well, they've got a liquor store down there. I'm telling you, the Hollywood, <laughs> Hollywood couldn't build a better liquor store than they have. It's almost as big as this room. 
the shelves have every kind of booze you can think of. They, they have islands of bargains stacked up in the middle. Was nine ninety five, now seven twenty five. And get this, they have shopping carts. And you get one of these shopping carts, and you just go through there and fill it up. Well, after 14 months, typical alcoholic fashion, didn't pay any attention to the word halt. Don't get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, too tired, didn't pay any attention to that. I drove all the way down there, over 600 miles. Wouldn't stop to eat. You know what a man is when he drives. Men don't want to stop. I don't know what the hell to deal with a man. He doesn't want to stop. And you women keep screaming, I've got to stop. Eventually we get the message. But I was hungry. I was, I was angry. I was lonely. And I was certainly tired. And I was most angry because it was raining and cold and I couldn't have my toys. My swimming pool was too cold to swim in. And the little three-year-old Brad and me said, well, I know what I'll do. This is a motel. When you're in a motel, you're supposed to drink. So I made the announcement to my wife that since we can't go swimming, I'm going back to that liquor store, and I'm going to load one of those carts up, and we're going to have a great vacation. Forgot everything else I had heard those 14 months within the fellowship. Paid no attention to the steps. I looked upon your reading of the steps as slowing up the, the meeting, taking away time, you know, when we could get to the, to the meaty stuff, the horror stories. And I resented that. I went ahead and, you know, I went ahead and accepted the first half of the first step, and the middle third of the twelfth step, I, I went that far. But there's other things in here. No, I haven't got time for that. And I would certainly never in my wildest dreams ever write down all the things I've done and share them with God and other human being. I wouldn't do that. So I paid no attention to these steps. That's the reason I had that thought, that overpowering thought, by the boots. And I was up and ready to go out of the door. And my wife said, Charlie, this may be one of those times when you're supposed to call AA. <laughs> she, was, um, she was a lot smarter than I was back in those days. And as a matter of fact, she still is. So very grumpily, I said, well, all right. Call AA. Yes, there was a meeting. Yes, it was tonight. Yes, it was within eye view of the Howard Johnson Hotel. Yes, it started at 8 o'clock. All right, we'll go to the damn meeting. <laughs> so you have to wonder if a higher power is working, what took place at that meeting that night. I went, and I sat in the back row with my, with my arms folded, my lip hanging down, and a lady with five years in the program, or five years of sobriety, five years since her last drink, stood up and told her story of how the week before she'd gone to a convenience store to buy just a few things. And as she went out, she bought some cooking wine. And when she got home, instead of cooking, she drank the wine. And she was off and running after five years. And I thought, you know, my little one-year chip may not work if in five years. And she's looking at me while she's talking. She'd never seen me in her life. <laughs> I thought, how does she know to be looking at me like this? This is around the 20th of December. And, you know, we're visiting in-laws for Christmas. Had I drank this... uh sign on the wall you see in many AA halls think to drink through there would have been no Christmas, there would have been no New Year's, there would have been no visits to the in-laws, there probably would have been no wife and I was dangerously close to that. When I got back I'm running along, I'm going to hurry up here when I got back I told this to one of my three sponsors Now, see, typical alcoholic passion I had had three sponsors, I mean one might be good enough for you <laughs> But there's certain things I could tell this guy, and certain things I could tell this one, and certain things I see this guy who goes to church, and he can only hear certain things. And, and so I told this, I told uh, this one sponsor what I what I'd done, how close I'd come to drink. He says, "Charlie, how, how long have you been in the program?" I said, "Well, I, you know, my 14 months. You know, I I got a blue chip." And he said, well, "Well, what do you?" I said, "Well, you know, I go to these meetings, and I go to." Detox, and I go talk to people, you know, and I talk to people and everything. He says, where are you in the program? I said, well, you haven't heard me. You know, I do this. I do he said, where are you in the program? And I said, what, what do you mean program? He said, what step? <laughs> he said, what step are you on? And I said, well, I, I, I uh, just... <laughs> and he had me. And he referred me to that section of the big book that says, there will come a time in the life of every alcoholic when no human power will keep him from that drink. And he said, you better get serious. You better get serious about this or you're not going to make it. 
scared me because I hung on his words. He's a guy I didn't listen to. Um, and so he got me started on the steps. And when I came to the fourth step, after having done the other three, it was very easy to get to the second step because staying sober for over a year, <laughs> I had to come to believe a power greater than me existed. Hey, and boys and girls, if a greater power than me doesn't exist, you are in heap big trouble, all of you are. It just really comes down to believing either there is a God or there isn't a God. And you take the choice. If you want to do it all on your own, which is what I was doing, I was getting nowhere fast. I didn't really grave. So, I took those steps. When I wrote my fourth step, I sometimes wish I'd have saved them and mimeographed them and passed them out in a meeting like this and just let you read them, take my name off of them. And ask you how old the, the guy is who wrote that, you would say 12. <laughs> if you're real generous, you may say 14. But as I read these things over and over, it's about two weeks before I could take the fifth step with my sponsor, and as I kept reading these over, and I hit him under the mat in the trunk of the car, you know, I had a man had locked up. Nobody gets that. As I kept reading them over, I think, no, wait a minute, is this right or not? Is this really right? And I read this paragraph. Yep, that's right. <laughs> well, what about it? And there was nothing I could delete. In fact, I even added some things in between lines. So I went, I took the fifth step with him, laid on the floor of his apartment. He sat in a chair looking at the ceiling. Hour later, <laughs> I'd been through everything. And he said, you know, that's bad, but he said, I've done those things too. I'm sober now. I've been sober 12 years, and you can make it. I needed to hear that. Um, I wasn't the only one in the world that, uh, that uh, did those things. And then moving to the other steps became vitally important. The spiritual awakening and the contact with a higher power with me is something that is personal and private, but very real. And I can't explain it to you if I could. You know, I'd write a book about it and make, make a million dollars, or I'd take someone who's having trouble with this concept and, and, and convince them, maybe, and save their lives. Now, here are the miracles I talked about at the beginning, and I'm wrapping this up. I'm already five minutes over. These, to me, are miracles in my life. The last time I went to pick up a white chip, I picked up two. This was the third white chip I picked up. Thirty days after that, our house burned down. Have you ever wondered what you take if your house is on fire? I used to do that. I don't know what, what, what you would take, but that night, my only concern, we were out having dinner, we were celebrating my wife's belly button birthday, and it was our 30 days in AA. And as we raced back and the fire engines were there, all I could think of was my dog, and the neighbors next door had gotten her out and had her all right. So I went in with a fireman with her, Axis blazing in the water that deep on a brand new wall-to-wall carpet we just put in. All this madness. I got my insurance box, my wife's jewelry box. And I picked up that book. And I left. And I just said, the hell with it. Neighbors were trying to save clothes. They're throwing things out in the yard. I just said, the hell with it. So we went to spend the night with two people. We'd gone to the Bahamas with quite a bit. Drinking buddies. They owned their own plane and I got to their apartment that night. They fixed themselves a drink. They walked into the bedroom, and they said, Charlie, what would you like? I said, a glass of water. <clears throat> I had my dog in my lap with a blanket. She was coughing up ashes. That's how I spent the night. Now, that has to be a miracle. Any reasonable person with any sense at all would say, my God, bring me anything to drink. You know? All our clothes wiped out. Pictures of 40 years wiped out. It was a mess. But I didn't drink. To me, that is a big miracle. Second time was a, gosh, I'm running late. I'm, it's 22 till. I want, I, I want to wrap this up. I'll skip a few of these miracles. Just believe me, they're here. <laughs> I do want to tell you about, after I have these 14, 15, 16, 17 months, and I'm feeling better and better about it, the company decided I should attend a severe weather warning hurricane conference uh, held out in Norman, Oklahoma, the university. So they signed me up, and they said, would you go? I said, yeah, I'll go. Well, as the time got close, I thought, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I ain't ever been out of town by myself in a motel a long way from home. 
You know, I've heard it said that alcohol gets more baffling and powerful the farther away from home you get. And <laughs> But they bought the tickets and everything was set and I had to go. So a couple of nights before that, I attended a meeting over on uh, Reach Inlet. And this was important, I think, to everyone who's new. And I said, hey, I'm worried. A couple of days, I've got to go to Oklahoma and be out there three days. And um, I just am afraid, you know, to go. And I still had to go. My job required it. And a young sailor, two weeks in uh, the alcohol rehabilitation center, leaned across the table and says, Charlie, you're not going out there alone. Hmm. Well, you should know about me that I'm a follower, not a leader. My wife, she knows what time, what gate, all this stuff. I never pay any attention to all that. I just follow, you know. And she says, go over here, stand in line. I stand in line. <laughs> so before we left, I began to get worried. I said, Stacy, really, I don't know if I can. I had to go through Dallas-Fort Worth. Anyone going through Dallas-Fort Worth and, wait a minute, and change planes? <laughs> When the, when the, when the plane you're changing to is Braniff, who's on the way down. So she said, I wanted to write a little sticker. Please help this man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, going out west and and going to Oklahoma, of course, I had to wear my, my cowboy boots and my denim. You know, man, you got, you know, tip it off. All you got to do that. So I pull all those things on. I had my suit for the meetings and everything packed and I had my big, big book. And Stacey had already gotten a list of all the numbers to call. Boy, I'm all set. Get on the plane. Off I go. Dallas, Fort Worth. Get off the plane. Walk in that monstrous place. And I'm following everybody. And we keep walking, walking, walking. <laughs> you know, m- most any man hates to ask directions anyhow, but an alcoholic. <laughs> so I finally thought, I haven't got but about 15 minutes to get to that next plane. I better ask somebody. I'm not going to find it following this bunch of clowns around a little car. So I went to his desk. I said, how do we get there? He said, get downstairs. You can take the yellow car. And take it. Okay. I could follow him. I got downstairs. And the speaker came on. The yellow car is on the surface. You must take a bus to the concourse such and such. You know, I'm getting confused by now because I've never done that. I really haven't. I always follow people. <laughs> Finally, a taxi pulled up and someone out. I, I said, you know where Braniff is? He, the guy said, yes, I know where Braniff is. I said, take me there quick. And he says, well, it'll be $5. I said, I don't care. Take me. He takes me to the bottom of this huge ramp, and he says, Brandup's up there. I said, well, take me to Brandup. He said, it'll be $6. I said, I don't care if it's $20. Get me up there quick. He got me up there. I just got on the plane. Went to the Bill Rogers uh, uh, airport there in Oklahoma City, and, and finally, through some strange miracle, went down and found what the luggage was. Well, it's going around and around and around, and I look around, and I'm the only one standing there. And <laughs> that, that turntable just keeps going around. No luggage. That's number one. Well, that didn't throw me too much. Then the phone calls Stacy. Stacy, I don't have any luggage. <laughs> she said, well, just, you know, go to the place and make a claim. That car reserved to get to Norman, so I went to the car desk, showed her my papers. She said, go out there and get a Fritzenheimer. You know, I don't know what these new cars are called. Back in my day, it was either an old Chevy or a Ford or something. But she said some name was something. I went out there. There must have been 20 acres of cars. <laughs> Frustration number two. So finally, I stopped the guy long enough to say, help me find his car. He said, it's in row eight. It's 26 in row eight. All right, we find it. Then I said, how do I find Norman, Oklahoma? He said, you go up here, you turn right, turn left there, you go up on this overpass, and you get right on it. He didn't tell me that when you get up there, unless you get in the right lane, you go around that thing about 20 minutes. (laughs) I'm not fitting at all well by now, but I did that. (laughs) <laughs> finally got on the road finally got to the motel went to check in the motel she says uh, Mr. Who? Uh, Mr. Hall we don't have any reservations for you know the company was supposed to take care of all this oh you must have no we don't well but we, we can fix you up I started to use that one you'd have a room if the president was coming well he ain't coming give me his room I started to use that one but she gave me the room and I uh, got checked in called Stacy again here I am sitting in denim and the cowboy boots. Meetings the next morning. No luggage. No big book. And she said, well, start calling these numbers. I called five times. 
This is a recording. I'm, I'm right right now. If you just leave your message, you know, boy, do I hate recordings, especially when you're desperate. Finally, one of them did call me back, though, and say, yes, there's a meeting, such and such a street, 130th Street, 130 blocks on the street. Uh, so I thought, well, I think I can find that. Stacey called me back. Everything was fine. <laughs> Got ready to go to the meeting that night in my denims. And when I leaned over the laboratory, immaculately clean, beautiful room, as I leaned over the laboratory to brush my teeth, in my peripheral vision, I swear, half bottle of scotch, sitting in the corner, back of the phone. Daisy! <laughs> I think a wife ought to take care of her husband. I don't know what's the funny. She said, well, pick the bottle up and pour it down the drain and let the water run through it and throw the bottle in the trash. Okay. Uh, hold the phone a minute. <laughs> Drove in town real quickly, and I was so proud. I found that street, and I turned right, and boy, it was right on time. The meeting's at 8 o'clock, and it's only uh, 20 minutes to late. Boy, I'm tuning along there, and the streets are going by, looking for 130th block, and and I find it. I look around, a filling station on that corner, vacant lot here, a bank, which was closed on this corner, and a big shed, a storage shed here. I'd gone the wrong way. 130 blocks back that way after I went back. That, it was not a good day. So by then, I thought, well, I don't want to be conspicuous and come in late at this meeting, so I'll just go on back. And as I drove back, I stopped, and I got a pint of ice cream. <laughs> From the Howard Johnson, went up and sat in the middle of bed, took off my shoes, and I called Stacy. <laughs> Told her what I'd done. Went to the meeting the next morning at the university. They said, who? We don't have you registered at all. I said, you don't? No, we don't. I thought, well, that suits me fine. So I already had a rented car. I was only 200 miles from my old hometown up in Kansas. So I thought, well, I'll just spend these three days up there. And I did. And I enjoyed it. And I went to an AA meeting. And they even asked me to talk. So it was a great trip. I'm running out of time, and uh, I have some more things here, but I've got to stop. Uh, I just want you people to know I love every one of you in a special way that only one AA can love another. And uh, I know I'm not what I what I should be. I don't think I'm what I could be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. 